0: Hello, everyone. It is IPOS 2023. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and we are doing something different this year. As our regular listeners know, we are always trying to mix up the content and find innovative approaches. Now, for the first time, we are mixing up the hosting. I and your other regular hosts want to make sure this show remains sustainable and outlives our involvement, so we're starting to expand the team. Specifically, to cover conferences like IPOS and the POSNA Annual Meeting, we're bringing in new talent. This meeting, Tyler McDonald from the University of Southern Alabama and Phil Nowicki from Grand Rapids, Michigan will be at the helm. I am certain that they are about to show you just how much better the hosting on this show can be, so with no further ado, let's hand over the baton and go to the meeting.
1: Welcome everyone to the podcast. This is a special episode where we bring you highlights of the 19th annual IPOS 2023 here in beautiful Orlando, Florida.
2: This is Tyler McDonald from the University of South Alabama. And this is Phil Nowicki from Grand Rapids, Michigan. We will be your hosts for this event. So your normal podcast hosts can have a break, but don't worry. They'll be back for our next episode. So this will be the first part of a two part episode,
1: we'll be meeting with some faculty to give you a flavor of the excitement and the content from this year's IPOS meeting. The list of faculty is excellent as always and if you didn't attend
2: this year, we strongly encourage you to attend in 2024. There's something for folks of all stages in their careers from residents to mid-career surgeons and great content for our advanced practice providers as well. So with that, let's jump into the content.
1: McDonald, and I'm joined here by Dr. Woody Sankar. We are coming to you from the recording booth at IPOS 2023. It's the first full day of the meeting, and it is underway in full swing. We just finished lunch and are getting geared up for some afternoon sessions. Dr. Sankar, how are you? Doing well, thanks. Yesterday, during the Arabella Leap session, you gave a talk on how to become involved with service to an audience of rising pediatric orthopedic surgeons.
3: Can you give us a summary on that? Yeah, so I I think uh, kind of my message was that ultimately you got to do what you enjoy. You know, uh, obviously people have chosen this field because they like taking care of children. But I think a lot of us find some meaning beyond just taking care of the kid in front of us. Uh, And service can take so many different forms. Uh, As I explained, there's plenty of people that do service by being that point of contact in their church group and their church sure people are members call them up and say hey listen I got a kid that's got a kidney problem where do I go? You, know, you just help people out like that but I primarily uh, gave the talk from the vantage point of POSNA yeah. for obvious reasons uh, and so I, as many of the listeners know I, I, I'm pretty involved in the organization and have been for a number of years uh, and really have enjoyed my time with that so I kind of was giving these, um, these people that are early on in their POSNA journey a little bit of a glimpse of, of how to get into it and um, if they want to Uh, I talked about just Basic stuff is just coming to meetings. You know, this is a world of virtual uh, learning and participation, but nothing replaces showing up for a meeting, shaking hands, having a drink or a coffee with somebody, and getting to know people on a personal basis. I think it just increases your networking. I think you learn stuff that's like not on the lecture. Uh, some of the little pearls that people will tell you in, in the back of the, uh, the back of the classroom, so to speak, which is really valuable. Get up, introduce yourself, ask questions to the microphone. I think that's really important. And then, you know, from an official. Basis, you know, join a committee. I mean, that's the easiest way to get involved. Um, you know, the committee assignment program uh, runs every spring around the time of the annual meeting. Everybody gets in their email. Obviously, you know, you have to kind of open it up and look at it. And we all know we get tons of emails, but this is one where you can kind of read through the different descriptions of different committees. Be like, you know, that, that kind of matches what I like, and then sign up. And everybody finds a home. There's a whole system that goes in place about uh, finding people a home, um, but uh, uh, but everybody can find a home and, and find something to do, and then. Like everything in life, you kind of rise through the ranks, right? You work hard in your committee, do a good job. Maybe a few years later, you have to run the committee, and a few years later, maybe you ask to do involve the council. And the next thing you know, people are tapping you for things like workforce projects and, and, and other leadership things. You mentioned uh, a HIP session, and I know you're moderating uh, some of that tomorrow and you kind of help plan. Yeah, so we have uh, two major sessions, and then we have some breakout sessions. Um, so the two major sessions, one's tomorrow. It's titled uh, kind of problematic uh, HIPs in the elementary years. And the idea here was to kind of, you know, we do do DDH a lot, and there's a little bit of some DDH segments in this session, but it's really kind of thinking about that, like, four to 11 year old you know age group where we're not talking about kind of hip preservation things uh, so much, and we're not really talking about infantile DDH and harnesses and stuff like that, but we're talking about that in between, and not things like Perthes and, and Skiffy, which we do revisit periodically. But we wanted, you know, to, to speak to your point, to churn it and do something different. So we have a collection of topics that fall in that age group um, that are different. So, for example, there is going to be a talk on shark Marie tooth hips. There's going to be a talk on MHE hips and MHE hip type deformity. There is a couple talks on um, managing uh, growth arrest after DDH surgery. So that shows up at seven, eight years of age, sure. you know, after you did seemingly a perfect operation when the kid's one or two. So it's kind of those challenges, you know, there's plenty of other directions we could go, but as always, we really try to be mindful about previous programs. So Down syndrome would have been a good topic, but we did that last year in a different session. So mm-hmm. we're kind of, there's so many ways you can go, but we're doing kind of a collection of problematic situations in that kind of ambulatory school-age kid that is not Perthes and Skiffy. Yeah, you mentioned CMT, which,
1: you know, most of us, when we think that, kind of think about the feet. What are some of the kind of pearls or takeaways
3: for, like, a CMT hip? This topic is actually very interesting to me because I am convinced uh, that it sees us a lot more than we see it. Uh, So CMT occurs in 1 in 2,500 kids, which is a lot if you think about it. right? It's a huge number. And so uh, it's got a very extremely variable presentation and when it does occur in hips, which we don't have great estimates, to be honest, of, of the prevalence of this organ. It's not something that's screened for. And so obviously as orthopedics we tend to see people that are symptomatic or got x-rays for something else, right? So it's not a great it's not a great denominator. But um, our best estimates from what kind of poor data is out there is somewhere around um, 6 to 8% of CMT kids get hip problems. And the problems that they get are really significant dysplasia. And it's not infantile hip dysplasia with dislocated hips it is dysplasia that occurs over time kind of like the way we think of cpe but obviously a very different neuromuscular envelope so my pearls usually for cmt or noticing cmt are a totally ambulatory patient with really high grade dysplasia and subluxation and almost no pain so they uh, they typically again because of the presumably because of the sensory differences they just don't feel pain the way uh, neurotypical kids do and so they go missed for years until maybe they have a little bit of a painless limp or something like that and then you get this x-ray and it's like oh my god you know and, and so the dysplasia is usually quite profound there's a lot of subluxation uh, at time presentation and um, and I think my pearl for those kids is. Not necessarily to wait for symptoms because symptoms are very late to appear because, I, in my opinion, the nature of the disease. I see
1: Saturday you're kind of giving us an update on some of the POSNO workforce initiative stuff. Can you uh,
3: give us a sneak preview of that? Yeah. So we presented a little bit of this last year uh, at the annual meeting of the business meeting. And I uh, certainly want to give credit to Jeff Sawyer, who was president at the time that this workforce uh, task force was convened and also was the kind of driving force between the first workforce assessment back in 2014. So really, credit goes to him uh, for this. He certainly valued this question in our society. And And so I would say the genesis of this was really... I think the kind of whispers around of saying, oh, man, it's a little harder to get my fellow a job. You know, he didn't get quite his first choice or she didn't get a first choice or second choice and, you know, and so on. And saying like, man, like, are we are we overtraining people? Um, where are we as a society? How much pediatric orthopedic work is out there to do so like anything in life you know the more you get into it you realize how complicated of an analysis this is and it is really complicated there are so many things that factor into workforce analysis you know gdp and you know what the market's doing people are going to retire if the market's high people stay on a whole lot of their jobs if the market's low population growth you know other things we ran into that were i would say a little bit unforeseen was we started to dig into you know how many Kind of work units are done by orthopedic adult orthopedic surgeons. Like when you say, "Okay, we've got this many kids with this many pediatric orthopedists," but does that actually reflect the amount of pediatric orthopedic work done? It turns out, not. So, adult orthopedists actually do a lot of pediatric orthopedic work, mm-hmm. and, and the, this was actually an interesting little sidebar that we did that I thought was actually pretty meaningful is we pulled ABOS data from people that did their oral boards because they do their case logs. We pulled all the ABOS data for the last 15 years and we looked at the number of patients under the age of 13 and other eight and under 18 who were operated on by somebody who examined outside of PEATs. So essentially an adult orthopedist, when they did their logs, you know what was there especially when they logged? And it turns out that over fifty percent of kids that had surgery under the age of 13 were done by adult orthopedists. Wow, half. Half. (laughs) Oh, wow. And then then under 18, it was 60-something percent. So we did that, and then you have to factor in things like APP. How much is, you know, APPs are really allowing pediatric orthopedic surgeons to see more patients. They're not, obviously, surgeons, so they're not a one-to-one replacement, but how do you factor that into the workforce? really complicated stuff. Anyway, all models, all assumptions baked into it, but to our best of our knowledge... Uh, we look like we're overtraining a little bit, but not quite as much as I would have thought going into it. So our our current fellowship graduating class is somewhere between 50 to 60 over the last 10 years, which is a lot more than it was when I went in. When I went into it, it's about 20 people. So it's about 50 to 60 for the last 10 years, and probably the sweet spot is in the high 40s. Mm-hmm. So at our current rates, I would say we are heading to a net oversupply of pediatric orthopedists, but not like... Dramatically, People can still get jobs, for sure. They may not be the exact perfect practice city, you know, everything that they want, but there certainly are jobs out there.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for uh, taking the time to meet with us and uh, give a little insight to those folks at home. And I uh, look forward to seeing you around. For yeah. yeah, thanks for
3: your time, Todd. All right.
2: Guys, we're back here at the podcast booth. This is Phil Nowicki and Tyler McDonald, and we're here with uh, Wade Schrader from Nemours. Um, Yesterday was the neuromuscular section, trying to hope to get your biggest takeaways from the the session yesterday.
4: Yeah, thanks, Phil. Tyler, thanks for having me on here. I'm really excited. IPOS is always one of my favorite meetings. I think it's just an extraordinary educational event that Posna puts on. I think it demonstrates really how important educating our, you know, up and coming next generation of pediatric orthopedic surgeons and providers. And so really, really happy to be here. But yeah, uh, we were excited about our neuromuscular session yesterday. You know, it feels to me like throughout POSNA, there's a growing interest in the neuromuscular space, right? I think we all take care of those kids, you know, even if you're not really a neuromuscular expert, especially if you're in typical pediatric orthopedic practices of four to five Folks, or even less, right? As you're growing it, right? So you, you know that neuromuscular issues are really common. Cerebral palsy is the most common motor disability in children. So you're going to see it. You know, I think even sports guys might see it if they're covering ca- trauma. So I think it's really, really important that we have an emphasis on it at this meeting. So we're really excited to have one of the in the main room, one of the concurrent sessions yesterday to have neuromuscular on a Wednesday. So we're really, really excited about that. So it was a combination of um, talking a little bit about. And guided growth, as well as talking about some soft skills things. We talked about care coordination and ethics. And I think that in particular, consistently, whenever we do some of these soft skills, I think throughout all of pediatric orthopedics, because we all can learn from that, right? And we all have, how do we approach parents? And what about ethical decisions? And when is a child too sick to consider surgery? Mm -hmm. And how do we do good family-centered care and shared decision-making? I mean, that really kind of goes across all our subspecialties. And it's incredibly important when you're taking care of a child with a disability. And so we get a lot of great feedback from those sessions. People want more of it. So I think it's important that we have some part of that every year here at IPOC. So I was really, really excited to have that part. Every guided growth is kind of the sexy new thing in in, in neuromuscular. So we wanted to talk about that and when you can do it or not. And then we then folded that over into a nice... Overview of SMA and kind of set the stage for everybody about the new medical treatments for SMA, Mm -hmm. the genetic treatments for SMA, and then how does that change your surgical decision making, many? You know, we used to be fairly. Um, You know, have benign neglect, as Ben Shore said yesterday. That was kind of our baseline approach for a lot of these kids, especially kids who had SMA1, knowing that their lifespan was probably not going to be significant and that they probably wouldn't live long enough to have painful hips. And so, um, really excited to kind of talk about that and see uh, Jason Brooks get a, did a phenomenal job with lots of great graphics from Scottish Rite to really explain, really in an orthopedic language, that you can understand the mechanisms of these new medicines and, um, and the new treatments. And so, and then Keyshore and Ben did a great job kind of doing a balanced little debate about. whether we should change our approach to the hips. And then Mike Vitale, I think, did a great job of covering spine issues kind of, you know, um, from A to Z. Speaking of SMA hips,
1: what are your thoughts on reconstruction and what are maybe two or three pearls you can provide for the
4: listeners at home uh, when taking care of those patients? I think we still don't know exactly what the final outcomes of these new medicines are, right? You know, we see some examples of an SMA kid that's now standing, Right. You know, like at age two or three when they've had early treatment. So clearly their longevity and their lifespan issues have changed. And if they are changing some motor function, that potentially could change how their hips are, you know, how their hips progress or not. I still think they're, you know, they're hypotonic kids. Right. And so they may be less likely to be painful than maybe a spastic hip compared to CP. But I think what's really, really sobering about all of this is the adult literature, which we're all focusing on a little bit more in neuromuscular. You know, I know Phil does some some adult stuff, right? And, you know, I think it's really, really important. And to get some feedback from both the CP and the SMA adult world that, you know, a large percentage of those adults have pain. And a lot of that pain is attributed to the hip. And I think that really is, you know, that along with the, You know, with the medical treatments, the genetic treatments really should change our focus a bit. So, I I think typically today, you know, an SMA2 hip, you know, I think we should treat, be pretty proactive about that. We should treat that a little bit more like the CP hip and have, you know, cutoffs and thresholds for doing surgery, you know, with migration percentages, you know, at 40% or so, for instance, because of the adult literature that i think there's a large percentage of them that have some pain and by and large that pain can probably be prevented with a hip reconstruction i think for the sma1 kids i think you have to individualize it i we now know that there's really not really so much of an ordinal thing of sma1 versus two but a spectrum we heard based on the number of copies of sma2 genes Mm -hmm. so i mean i think if that kid's acting more you know and has having some more standing and some more ambulatory function even in a gait trainer or things like that probably need to treat that a little bit more proactively. If it's more truly still an SMA one type kid that is still in a wheelchair, you might want to wait until they're painful, but the first sign that they have pain, I think you should pull the trigger for that.
2: You got to talk on tomorrow in uh, the preferred technique session on MTP arthrodesis. Just give us a little uh, uh, intro on your your talk, maybe some indications and pearls for your uh, that
4: procedure. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about the big toe tomorrow in the and preferred <laughs> techniques. Right, I'm the guy that gets to talk about the big toe. So um, you know, but I think it's important. You know, I think the board answer for a long time for hallux valgus and dorsal bunions in the setting of CP is to fuse it. Right. I think that's the board answer. And I think the reason why that's the board answer is that we know that a lot of times not more traditional bunion first ray procedures have just had a really high failure rate for kids with CP. And I I fundamentally believe that the majority of patients with CP and their families, by the time they get to that point, you know, the, the bunion, the first toe issues really come about later right you know you might be dealing with the hips when they're six seven or eight spine around 10 11 12 usually the toe usually is a little bit later than that right by the time they've gone through that gauntlet of of orthopedic care i really firmly believe that they really want one surgery they don't want to have to come back again right so so fusion we know is very very reliable I think the questions have been in more functional kids, you know, so GMFCS-1 is pretty rare in that population, but gmfcs 2s what do you do with that? You know, are we, could we cause adjacent joint arthritis? Could we lose some function? Because we do know that the first ray is important in normal biomechanics of gait. And the study that I quote about this Was I was doing my board certification, my MOC a couple of years ago, and, you know, you have to pick some non-pediatric articles. And so there was a foot and ankle paper in there. I would not heard about it, but it was on activity changes after first MTP fusions in typically developed adults. And uh, so, you know, this was, uh, you know, looking at what kind of sports you played, you know, if you had a fusion as a young adult. You know, so the the age range was like from 25 to 45. Mm -hmm. You know, what sports and activities, physical activities, do you do before and after the first MTP Fusion? And guess what? There was no change. (laughs) There was no change. So folks were able, and in fact, you know, some people who were doing really, really high-end dance or things like that, they lost some of those abilities. (laughs) But there were a lot of people that could do more because they didn't have the pain of the first MTP. I mean, it was a really well-done article in the Foot and Ankle uh, Adult Literature, and if that's true for typically developed adults, you know it's true for GMFCS two mm-hmm. and three functioning kids with CP, mm-hmm. right? And so, so the only time I think about a non-fusion technique is if they're really, really young, and I tell them that we're likely going to have to fuse it in the, in the future, mm-hmm. or if it's a really, really high functioning GMFCS one, where that maybe that's not as much of a neuromuscular thing. To be. Sure. So I do I do a fusion on the others. So I have some good videos. I think the most important thing, like most most foot fusions, is good surface preparation. You got to have enough exposure so you see the MTP joint. I like to use the cup and comb reamers. That's one of the most fun things. It's like you're doing a little mini total hip, you know, and doing the little reamer there, right? There's some techniques and tips that I can pass along that you could, you know, you could have some complications related to that. And so I'm happy to share my experience with that. And then, you know, we we show some examples of fixation. I use a little dorsal lock plate that kind of fits that five degrees of dorsiflexion, which I think is what you should fuse into. But people usually use staples or staple plates. I think it doesn't really matter.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for coming and sprinkling some knowledge on us and the listeners at home. And um,
4: we'll, uh, we'll start will Sounds great. So happy to be here. And, uh, thanks for having me.
1: IPOS 2023. I'm Tyler McDonald, and I'm joined here by Dr. Bob Cho. Bob, glad
5: to have you with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. I've wanted to do this for some time, and I finally got asked, so thank you. Well, here you go. You're moving up in the world. I love it. (laughs) What's your favorite part about IPOS? I think my favorite part is that every year I learn new things. Um, that uh, It doesn't matter what stage of your career you're in, you get to learn uh, something new, something that's actionable immediately uh, after returning from this meeting. I think also the fact that you can stand shoulder to shoulder with uh, people you've respected and meant that have been mentors to you is uh, and talk, talk to them in an intimate format and ask some questions about anything. Um, it's really unique to this meeting, and I think it's the best educational meeting that I go to hands down every year.
1: So just looking at the schedule upcoming on Friday, you're taking part in the neuromuscular and syndromic spine session. You're going to teach us all about how to optimize and prepare the neuromuscular patient preoperatively. So how should we be going about that? I know there's a lot of gray area and a lot of, uh scariness around that so what are your uh, what are your key takeaways
5: from that talk I think the key takeaway is for neuromuscular spine patients, we know that there's a high complication rate for that um, patient population for spine surgery. Uh, so what you really need to do is you need to optimize the patient. And really the crux of what I'll be talking about is to have a really good multidisciplinary team approach. Um, you really have to have um, a, an evaluation of where the kid is and where the kid's going to be after surgery. And that can't just be from you as an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and You really need uh, good pediatricians, good neuromuscular specialists that can help to tell you whether or not, number one, it's worth it to do the surgery, you know, and then number two, uh, how you're going to prevent complications uh, for surgery. So one of my favorite IPOS staples is the author's preferred
1: technique session, and I see that you're slated to give us all the right answers for how to tackle intraoperative distraction
5: for severe scoliosis. Uh, Can you give us a sneak peek? Sure. Uh, So I love using this technique. It is um, basically, if you have very severe scoliosis, how do you make that better uh, without necessarily putting a kid in a halo for a very long time? Um, And... Basically, the crux of it is uh, there was a paper that was written by uh, lead authors Bukowski um, in 2006 and 2007 in JVJS that describes the technique, um, but you put proximal fixation points into usually the ribs, uh, and then you put distal fixation points usually into the lumbar spine, and then you use a temporary distraction across those points with uh, rods connected through uh, domino connectors, and because the spine is viscoelastic, if you stretch over a very long period of time. Every time you go back, usually every 15 to 20 minutes, you can get a little bit more stretch. In our series, we've done this approximately 50 to 60 times. Um, I'll have to check our numbers, but somewhere in that neighborhood, our average correction is about 70%. Well, great. I'm looking forward to that
1: talk. Sure. I wanted to ask you about the mentoring program, the mentorship program that IPOS has. I know you're involved with that. Can you kind of give the listeners at home kind of an idea of what that is how it's grown what that looks like for uh, attendees
5: well I think this is the best part of IPOS is that you really do get mentoring through the meeting um and uh uh, the junior uh, attendees, uh, residents, and fellows—they have the opportunity to participate through this program, where they get matched up with a uh, with a senior faculty. The nice part about it is that uh, you get to interact with someone, usually in a, a similar field that you want to go into. So, say you want to go into spine, we try to match you up with a spine person who's usually in your same geographic area as well. I, I'm actually most proud of the name of the program, which is guided growth, which uh, <laughs> I wish I came up with. Uh, I, I didn't. Uh, Reed Nichols and I, when we were running it together uh, a few years ago, we decided we needed a better name than mentoring program. Um, and we crowdsourced this and Joe Rosenblatt, who's a pediatric orthopedist out in Philadelphia uh, at St. Christopher's Hospital, he was the one who came up with his name. And so i got to give him credit. It's such a great name. Um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's like a super intensive mentoring program like over an entire year. This is more of being a Sherpa through um, the week of IPOS because there's so much to do. And having someone to lean on to tell you where to go, what might be interesting um, is really helpful. You know, the mentees that I've had, I've stayed in touch with to some degree. A lot of them are often looking for jobs and so for me it's I can introduce them to people that that may need to have a spine person you know and so for that part of the mentorship I think is really valuable at this meeting because usually this meeting is a time where a lot of fellows are looking for a job Um, and there's I get to match those people with people here that are looking for spine fellows coming out. I think that's another benefit to this program. I think it's also just uh, it decreases the barriers. I remember when I was um, just coming out of fellowship from San Diego, um, I wanted Dr. Sukinshaw to mentor me. Um, and I w- I was in SRS in Kyoto and I waited for him to finish a talk I remember being so nervous talking to this guy and like I was like oh excuse me Dr. Shah could you please mentor me and you know I, I was hoping he'd be nice and he, he, he was so gracious like yeah I'd be happy to mentor you you know and he's been one of my best mentors for the last 13 or 14 years and um, I wanted to decrease the anxiety level of that and so that's the whole point of the program. You get assigned, so you don't have to ask for someone. And, uh, you know, I would say most of our mat- uh, mentees are super happy with the matches. Um, you know, most of our mentors are super happy with doing this program. I can tell you the mentors that aren't, we, we, we don't usually have them do it again. So it, the faculty um, are really selected for this program. I couldn't think of a better name for a mentorship program, Guided Growth. That's I mean, excellent. It's amazing, right? <laughs> then we had to we had to try to figure out what we would call the mentors and the mentees. And so we were getting cute with like, are someone going to be the screws? Someone going to be the plates? Oh, oh, and then we said, you know what? Just mentor and mentee. <laughs> Keep it simple. Yeah.
1: Well, great. Well, that's all the time we have for right now. So uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks for coming by and
5: uh, giving us a little insight. Thanks so much, Tyler. Appreciate you having me on. Sure, thanks.
1: IPOS 2023, and I'm Tyler McDonald, joined here with the co-directors of this year's IPOS, Dr. Derek Kelly and Dr. Sukin Shah. Gentlemen, glad to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to be here. Well, congratulations. The 19th annual IPOS is now officially underway. Uh, It's Wednesday afternoon, and we've had the first half day under our belt. So from y'all's perspective, what's been going well so far? Any talks that have stood out to you?
6: Well, it being the first day, um, getting off to a great start was important. We talk about the fuse being lit, and then then this plane basically flies itself with the dedication of the faculty and the logistics handled by really uh, excellent staff. The first session was fractures and trauma, and this room, uh, this session in the big room really brings everyone together. It was an excellent combination of superb talks, animation, and audience engagement because they used this app to look at um, a quiz before and after the learning and you can really see how people have changed their their answers based on the information. And they're going to take that home
7: next week and um, hopefully help some patients. I'm so far really loving the energy of this meeting. There are a lot of people here. I think we're near, if not above, our record number of attendance for IPOS this year, and the energy, even in the hallway behind us, as maybe they can hear, has it's, it's been really wonderful. Uh, I was involved in two hands-on sessions today. This was our second year to do a, a supracondylar pinning lab, which was a hands-on pinning using a sawbones model, and uh, it was a lot of great energy in that room, uh, a lot of uh, resident learners uh, who had not really done a lot of that, so it was great to get them in, uh, on the drills and, and kind of using their hands. And I just finished a uh, Ponseti on the go uh, session uh, doing Ponseti and Clifford Casting, and uh, the room was actually kind of packed a little bit more than we expected. We had to pull in some extra faculty and some extra models to accommodate all the people who were interested, so the energy here so far has been wonderful. That's awesome. So for the programming,
1: what, what's new this year? What are you all most excited about that maybe um, you've added since last year?
6: You know, the general sessions are always in the big room, getting everybody together is so important, and then the breakouts make the small group learning model so effective. Uh, Tomorrow's general session, for instance, is going to be dealing with complex conditions where we need to rely on our practice partners or other subspecialists and bring it all together for arthrogryposis, osteogenesis imperfecta, and connective tissue disorders like Marfan syndrome. And we're going to learn from the experts and
7: learn to lean on each other for, for that expertise. And we're really looking forward to that. We have today, this afternoon, and this is not new, but we've expanded it this year to industry-sponsored content as well. Uh, Throughout the week, two sessions today, and then throughout the week later, we have a number of sessions where our industry brings in experts, either people who may be on the faculty here or others, uh, to talk about great innovations. And we're so lucky in this society to have such great partnerships with our industry, uh, and you really see it here with the innovation and some of the hands-on things that they're doing. So are there any big changes
1: that y'all made this year based on feedback that you gleaned from last year's programming?
6: I think um, at least Derek and I avoided making any big changes, just iterative improvements, constantly tweaking. We heard some feedback from our APPs, which um, make up a large segment of our, our learners this year, 125, 130. They wanted to participate in the Essentials talks, which were running concurrently last year with theirs. So we separated that. They can attend the Essentials Orthopedics Talks. They can go to their own APP track. And now there's no conflict between those two. And I think they're going to be really pleased with with that change.
7: There are not, uh, from year to year, major big changes in the way the schedule runs. uh, But there are very large changes in the content. Uh, Every year, almost every talk is brand new. Uh, it's a little bit challenging for our faculty because they don't get to reuse talks. But it's great for the learner, especially if you come year after year, because every year you get to see it here in new meeting. I know last year you experimented with the mid-career
1: uh, course, and obviously the feedback was positive because it's on the schedule again for this year. So from last year, what worked? What didn't work? What's the flavor of
6: this year's mid-career offering? Well, I think if we take a step back, one of the reasons we had a gap in mid-career learning was that we want positive members to come back to this meeting that uh, they learned so much from if they came in years past. There's something for everybody here, whether you're a resident or whether you're a seasoned attending 30 years in practice. And the mid-career course specifically allows someone to come in efficiently at the end of the week. Um, They don't have to leave their practice for five days. They can pick up some great tips on teaching, mentorship, leadership institute, And then we have this year some really interesting talks on financial planning for a mid-career person. We're going uh, 2.0 on Teach the Teacher. Um, We have um, some things on mentorship. We always have an education and fellowship update. And the really exciting thing, which is brand new this year, is going to be a segment on machine learning and artificial intelligence and how that may fit into how we practice pediatric orthopedics in the future. Yeah, it's a hot
7: topic all around right now, so that'll be pretty exciting. And as he said, in the coming years, we want to continue to break down those barriers between further along in the career people coming to IPOS by making some more case-based discussions, bringing in experienced, seasoned learners who can also participate in the education and content, uh, maybe making some more social activities available for people who have perhaps not been here, here in a while. It's going to be a big focus for us. We feel like that POSNA, the annual meeting, is where you get to see the new research, the new abstracts that are coming out, and then I post should be where that is synthesized and where people put that into actual practice. We have a segment on Saturday, which is called, I Just Became a Chief, Now
6: What? And the email banter between Jim McCarthy and the several people we have on the panel has been really robust with things they wish they would have known, questions that they would love to stimulate discussion. And as we know... Uh, ph orthopedic surgeons play leadership roles in hospitals and practice all the time and whether you're a program director or on an h- important hospital committee these are skills that you need to know and we're hoping to bring out some of those things in practical terms
1: yeah it's great because there's not any uh,
7: dedicated lectures on that when you're a trainee so where else are you going to get it i was a few moments ago in uh, that supercondylar pinning lab that i mentioned before and one of the attendees actually from overseas has a 10 to 15 years of experience And uh, although he was there to kind of pick up some tips and tricks, he immediately started taking on the teaching role for some of the junior people that were there. And it was wonderful. All of a sudden, I had a new faculty member in the room who was contributing to the education. Uh, So we we need to have those folks in this meeting. Yeah, that's awesome. Those little interactions like that are what make this meeting awesome.
1: So, uh, Derek, next year I know you'll be flying solo. Can you give us a taste of any of the new changes that you're considering coming down, or is it uh, it too top secret for now? So
7: I can tell you no one flies solo around here. The team and the support around this meeting is amazing. If something goes wrong, then yes, that's my fault. But (laughs) if it goes well, as it will, it's because of an enormous effort from the opposing team, all the people who have come before me that are very willing to keep me on on track. Uh, Big changes, as we said before, not a lot of huge iterative changes. I do think the mid-career program is going very well, so we're definitely going to continue that. Anytime we have a hands-on offering, it is very popular, so as many opportunities as we can – create hands-on experiences. uh, We're going to be doing that as well. We continue to expand our on the goes where people can stop in for a brief uh, hands-on experience, whether it be with Halo Traction uh, or Pavlik Harness or Clubfoot. So a few things that are going well, we'll continue to expand. Some of our core curriculum, we're going to definitely continue that, although uh, our subject matter experts are going to be very thoughtful in the procedures and the discussions that they bring to the curriculum. One of the best parts of the meeting for me
1: when I was a trainee was the Tuesday night offering the Arabella Leap Forum. What advice do you have for those at the meeting who are in residency, maybe looking for fellowships or just starting out their career in pediatric orthopedics?
7: Yeah, so uh, as we talked before, uh, this is a meeting where you have four or five meetings going on at the same time. We have uh, courses for advanced practice providers. We discuss the uh, mid-career or more seasoned surgeon courses. Uh, We have uh, courses specifically designed more for residents and fellows. And you spoke to the Tuesday night offerings. Uh, There are scholarships associated with that, so many people can uh, get scholarships. Uh, You can come and present cases. We also have what we call our guided Growth program where we mer- pair you with mentors, uh, and many of those relationships continue well beyond IPOs. So it's a great place to come and network, learn about what this community is like, um, make sure it is a fit for you. I would be challenged. I would challenge you to find an example where it isn't for you, because uh, people here are so wonderful. But um, this is a great place for people to start their career, maybe meet some of their giants, some of the people they want to know, maybe start some of those relationships moving toward fellowship.
6: I think the fellowship programs are pretty well represented here as well, and it might be a nice networking opportunity to look at further training and perhaps even um, your future employer. Well, uh, we're about
1: uh, out of time here. Any uh, last-minute advice for those that are on the fence about maybe
7: um, coming next year to IPOS uh, 2024? Yeah, so a couple things to think about. This meeting changes every year. So if you've been this year or recently, then please plan to come back because the content is new. Uh, And this should not be a meeting where you just come alone. Uh, most years I bring my family I've got two young kids and my wife they typically come toward the end of the week and then we spend a couple of days enjoying Central Florida and going to some of the theme parks and riding some roller coasters and having a great time the weather is usually pretty good in fact uh, yesterday it was good enough that I saw some kids swimming in the pool so uh, consider bringing your family along and coming down and enjoying Central Florida All right, well guys thanks so much for uh,
1: joining us here and um, we'll be seeing you around the meeting and um, so far it's been great
7: Thank, Thank you, Thank you Tyler. Work.
8: You guys
7: do great work. All right, we are back
1: in the podcast booth here at IMPOS 2023. Uh, I'm Tyler McDonald. I'm joined uh, with Phil Nowicki today, and we've got Phil McClure in the booth with us today. Phil, how's it going? It was
2: great. Nice to be here with you, fellas. All right. Phil, so you were uh, you were an instructor at last year's iPost, and uh, you've moved now up to uh, formal faculty. What well, kind of, from your perspective, what has that kind of meant in regards to responsibilities and/or uh, preparation on your end?
0: So the the biggest change for me is uh, I'm helping with uh, David David Pidesma's Top Gun, which I've you know never been involved in even as a resident. Like, so it's exciting to see that and, and get involved in it and try to bring you know principles of deformity correction into Top Gun and you know, get a frame on it just a couple minutes you know it's I think it's going to be really exciting you know for us and the limb deformity team and also for the residents and fellows who are doing top gun so that's pretty cool for me like mentally the biggest change is now I've got to think for next year who are we going to be talking to what are we going to be talking about where do we want to focus our our thoughts and our our instruction so I'm trying to watch you know Derek Kelly and Reed Nichols and these guys to, to try to pull in more uh, habits from the people who are have been doing it for a while and doing
1: it well. There you go. Those are good people to emulate. So um, your main talks take place on Saturday. Uh, you'll be discussing some congenital differences below the knee. For the listeners at home, what sort of words of wisdom do you have on how to approach and care for those challenging conditions?
0: I, I think it's uh, similar to many things in peds ortho where there's one obvious problem and you, you run a major risk of getting yourself into trouble by pigeonholing yourself or getting tunnel vision on that problem. So we're trying to focus, you know, this year below the knee, so predominantly fibular hemimelia, but also, you know, bring back, hey, you know, there's still a hip up there. And, you know, when is the knee unstable enough to justify prophylactic treatment? What does that look like? And we, for the second year now, we're doing our deformity day in a... Uh, like a group discussion kind of format. So we've got a collection of experts from around the country, and we'll be sitting at tables, hopefully you know, crowd-size allowing, where we sort of put up a case, then we all discuss, and we discuss it as a group. It worked out really nicely last year to pull out some of the, the like pearls and thought process difference uh, that I think really is the difference between it going okay and it going great, or it going okay versus terribly. Because, you know, as we all know, congenital deformity is one of those places where a terrible outcome is certainly possible and something we want to avoid. Segwaying over to uh, just the complexity
2: of a limb deformity surgery, if you could pick one surgery for the rest of your career,
0: what would it be? My favorite right now, actually, is uh, congenital patellar dislocations, fixed dislocated, like in the diastrophes or nail patella syndrome, I, I think... It, it was like why do I like that because you know, it's it's I don't even know why I think it's just it feels like it makes a really big difference sure. I had a kid in Utah that uh, came out of the cast and walked for the first time ever and the mom was like whoa it's like a miracle and in reality it's just really nice to have your patella where it belongs and, and so I think that's a, a great surgery that really works nice and uh, there's only so much hardware you can take out right so I can't pick hardware for the rest <laughs> of my life I like that
2: so as faculty
0: in both uh, the podium
2: presentations as well as uh, in the industry, spotlight sessions. Um, what's kind of the difference in approach you're taking in for your preparation and also just being a presenter in the audience you, that were par- uh, participating in the sessions?
0: I think you always have to try to understand as best you can ahead of time who's likely to walk into the room. The neat thing about the industry sessions is they, they tend to have lots of choices of where to go. And so they, you know, in theory, if they walk into the intermediary lengthening session, they're on board. You know, they're there for that. They, they know about it. They're aware of the basics because they chose that over three to five other options mm-hmm. that may also be very interesting to uh, you know, a general pediatric orthopedist, who I feel like is the main target audience of this meeting. So, you know, this this year, the intermediary lengthening session turned out really nicely because there was a lot of experience in the crowd. We had some good discussions. We picked five or six cases to talk about sort of tips and tricks from Sean Standard and Christoph Radler and, uh, you know, blocking screws, when and where, anti retrograde, you know, all those double-level osteotomy kind of concepts that are fun to talk about. Um, interestingly, we, we sort of blew right past the idea of the straightforward anti-grate nail. Um, and the the audience, I think, was right where we needed to be for that kind of discussion. So it was a lot of fun. And the general sessions, you know, in the limb deformity part, it's also usually a pretty tight group, which opens up to also really nice group discussions. I think, you know, speaking from the podium in the big room is a, is a much more challenging task because you've got to find a pearl for... You know, the APPs, the young residents, the old residents, the fellows, the young attendings, mid-career attendings, and and hopefully, you know, someone will teach Derek Kelly something. You know? <laughs> and, like, that's hard to do. And so it's a, it's a challenge I look forward to in the future is being able to try to balance that, you know, a broader audience in the general sessions. And there's just unbelievable, you know, mentors and examples on, on how you do that.
2: Well, excellent. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you next year again and see what yeah, else we can bring. Yeah, perfect. perfect.
0: Thanks, guys.
2: All right, we're back again here uh, at iPost 2023. I'm Phil Nowicki and I'm joined by Kyle McDonald and also Kelly Teilsted. Callie, first, as kind of one of the more younger faculty members, um, how has your experience uh, at IPOS been both last year and this year? Well,
8: it's been so wonderful to be a part of the IPOS team. As one of the more junior faculty, it's really cool to be on the other side of it. So as a trainee, coming through and seeing all these things, but then coming in as faculty, but there's still so much to learn myself. And so being able to interact with these people who are like the giants in the field, still be a junior faculty but then still be on the podium with them it is like such an incredible honor and learning so much not only about our field but also education, learning how to teach our residents and fellows, learning what works for them um, is just a great experience.
2: So with that, kind of what couple of uh, things maybe you've taken away from more of the senior faculty, let's say behind the scenes in the in the faculty retreat room and
8: So I think a lot of it is education and it's, you know, talking slowly, making sure you know what the residents and fellows are coming into these educational sessions with, knowing what they expect to take out of it, and then creating a timeline and a thought process for yourself for how to reach those goals and then making sure to like summarize it all in the end. And I think you can do that in any type of session that you're in and any educational session. Um, you know, I can even do it with my kids. Like, it's just a really great way to think about anytime you're educating anybody.
1: Yesterday, you, know, you talked a little bit about uh, bracing uh, for kids with scoliosis and some best practices there. Can you give the listeners at home uh, maybe some key takeaways from that?
8: So this is sort of a, I thought of it in a different way than your typical scoliosis bracing talk, because we've all heard the talk about you know, when to brace, how long to brace, and um, we've all seen all the research uh, from that dates back to the 70s and 80s about why we brace. And instead, I thought about it as, well, bracing works, but it only works if they wear it. So trying actually to look from the social, emotional side of it, and how do we change that choice architecture for these families and kids to get them into a place where they're willing to accept the brace and consider wearing it that full time. And what can we do as, again, educators for our families to become choice architects that make that choice more uh, positive for them uh, overall? And so really sort of transforming the idea of, well, bracing and how why does it work, but thinking about it as like we're a team and making sure that um, we actually get them into the brace.
1: How would you say that's changed maybe compliance with your patients or sort of like have you, have you seen like that manifest in like your practice compared to maybe when you were a trainee?
8: So that is actually my passion. That's like what I do research on is like the whole social emotional side of scoliosis diagnosis and treatment. And so I think that we're seeing a lot more recognition of that in our clinics. You know, some places actually have psychiatrists that are able to see patients with them. And I do see that when I give them more immediate feedback and in a way that they're able to receive it as a teenager or preteen, they are more responsive to that and giving them some autonomy where they can help we work together, and we actually sit down and write their bracing schedule together, so that they can work through the how to get that 18 hours. So they understand. Well, I can't get that 18 hours if I don't wear it to school because they they physically write it down. That makes a big difference. Like getting them engaged in doing that, I think, is really important.
1: So it's kind of kind of guiding them to more of like an intrinsic sort of instead of saying you have to wear it to school. That's right. or you, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right.
2: But also. The acceptance in society of it as well. And what kind of viewpoints have you seen from your patients about society in general and acceptance with scoliosis? Well, I
8: mean, and I think presenting it in a way, like my kids are about these kids' age. I have two girls. I understand what they want to wear. (laughs) I know. and, And getting them hooked into a group of kids who are going through the same thing is really important. Um, whether it's in their location or remotely. But then showing them, and a lot of times they'll come to our, you know, they'll get really interested in orthopedics and they'll come in to, like, uh, learn about orthopedics in general. And so just, uh, like you said, getting them more intrinsically motivated to be a part of that. And then the other stuff, right? Like, most schools nowadays have a short day. So you'd be like, well, that short day, you can wear that crop top. But every other day, how do you feel about wearing the brace? Because, you know, you don't need to wear a crop top every day at school. And, like, just thinking about their life in general and their social life and what they want to do is really important.
1: Well, I think that's about uh, all the time we have for now, but uh, thanks so much for coming Yeah. Now uh, you know all about crop yeah. tops. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. I don't think we could wear crop tops where I went to high school, so I don't Maybe <laughs> in the clinic now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right,
4: well, all right. well your thank your you whenever. guys
8: so much. This is yeah. great. Mm-hmm.
1: Part one of this two-part IPOS 2023 episode. Tune in to part two for more content. Awesome, well, guys, thanks so much for. Um, I'm Derek Kelly. I'm the mayor. of <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you need to put this on the, uh, the airport. I'm gonna not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna hear Derek Kelly. So you did it better than I did. <laughs>